0: This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. Governor Gavin Newsom has announced that food workers in California will get two weeks of paid sick leave to help them deal with the outbreak of COVID-19. KQED politics reporter Katie Orr has the details.
2: Newsom has signed an executive order giving the paid sick leave to farm workers, grocery and fast food employees, and delivery drivers, among others. The federal government recently passed a similar paid sick leave package for smaller companies. Newsom says it's
1: critical to protect all food workers. We don't want you going to work if you're sick. And we want to make sure that you know that if you're sick, it's okay to acknowledge it and it's okay to let your employer know and still know that you're going to get a supplemental paycheck.
2: The order also calls for increased hand washing at food facilities to better protect customers. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento.
0: In San Joaquin County, a worker at a grocery distribution center belonging to Safeway has died of COVID-19. The grocery chain confirms that several other workers at that same warehouse have also tested positive. Reporter Haley Gray has more. Workers at the Safeway warehouse in Tracy have been very busy. And an employee from the same facility told KQED that the amount of staff on the floor nearly doubled as demand for groceries peaked.
1: Well, it isn't too surprising that we would have a cluster of infections in a workplace.
0: That's Arthur Rheingold, a professor of epidemiology at UC Berkeley, though the death of a worker is tragic. He says this shouldn't make you afraid to buy groceries. And Rheingold said he wouldn't worry specifically about Safeway.
1: My guess is uh, that there are people with COVID-19 working in, you know, in, it,
0: uh, at other food suppliers, frankly. Safeway did not respond to requests for comment. For The California Report, I'm Haley Gray. Let's turn now to how the COVID-19 outbreak could make our next fire season a particularly dangerous one. There's new science that shows climate change is pushing California and much of the American West into a drought like we haven't experienced in centuries. KQED science reporter Kevin Stark explains.
1: For 20 years, the West has been dry and those arid conditions have been punctuated by a punishing heat. Researchers say warming has thrust the region into a sustained dry period, what they call a mega-drought, not experienced here since a 28-year dry spell lifted in the year 1603. The scientists came to the conclusion after studying 1,200 years of tree ring records, which they compared against modern weather observations and computer models. The scientists say their modeling shows global warming is a key driver. A mega drought would have huge implications for water conservation and agriculture in California. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark.
0: After the record blazes Californians have lived through these last few years, firefighters now have to factor in the COVID-19 outbreak as they plan for the coming fire season. I spoke with Fire Chief Dave Winokur of the Moraga-Orenda Fire District in the hills just east of San Francisco.
1: Just because we're dealing with a pandemic doesn't mean the fire season is going to take a year off. All of the factors that have contributed to the catastrophic fires of the last several years are still in play. And we're very concerned about people's attention being drawn away from preparing for fire season, specifically on preparing defensible space around their homes and doing fuels mitigation and reduction projects while we have this time. Once fire season gets here, because of the issues with aggregating large numbers of people, in a congregate living space, the way we fight fire is going to be stressed. And we typically rely on bringing together large numbers of people who work out of tight spaces for long periods of time. Their immune systems are suppressed because they're tired, they're worked hard, they're exhausted. And those would be conditions that would be ripe to support widespread uh infection of mm-hmm. the fire firefighting force.
0: So let's say we do end up getting major fires this year in June or even as soon as May. How does the scenario change in terms of things like evacuating people, for example?
1: Sure. Well, not only do we rely on aggregating large numbers of firefighters to respond to a fire, but we, as we evacuate people, we bring them all to a single place, usually a fairgrounds or some other large space and they're fed by the Red Cross in a, in a cafeteria setting. They're set up in emergency shelters in, um, on cots that are side by side. And those are the conditions that, that would be absolutely perfect for the spread of the virus. And while given enough time and the opportunity to access the resources, we can come up with alternate plans for what to do with people who've been evacuated. Our, our go-to, our de facto response is just not going to be an option this year, meaning that there's gonna be additional complexity to responding to these problems. And if we have fires at the scale that we saw in 2017 and 2018, even using all of our tried and true response patterns and available resources, the system was stressed to capacity during those years in the face of unprecedented fires. And this year? And this year, you know, the, the running joke uh, in the fire service going way back is uh, one way or another, it's going to be the worst fire season ever. If it rains a lot, we'll get a big growth of grass and things will be, there'll be a lot of fuel and it'll very hot. If it doesn't rain very much, all the grass will be cured out earlier in the year. Fuel moistures will be very low. Either way, every year has the potential to be a very bad fire season in California.
0: That was Fire Chief Dave Winneker of the Moraga-Orenda Fire District east of San Francisco. How do we all feel about saying goodbye to our data privacy during the COVID-19 pandemic? We give away a lot of data already to all sorts of companies, but not typically sensitive health information to those tracking infections. That looks like it's about to change, as KQED's Rachel Myro reports from our Silicon Valley desk.
3: I've got a cousin in Israel who got a text the other day from the Ministry of Health. It told him to self-quarantine because he came close to somebody unidentified to him who was infected. Now, in Israel, the government has collected location data from cell phone carriers for years. Not so here in the U.S., where the first large-scale contact tracing proposal comes from Silicon Valley. Reaction from data privacy hawks? Mixed. But a surprising number say they like the looks of it, like Josephine Wolf, an assistant professor of cybersecurity at Tufts.
2: It's really heartening to me to see companies like Apple and Google really putting in the effort to design a privacy-protecting system when it's clear they wouldn't necessarily have to in order to get people to opt in in order to collect some of this data.
3: What does she like so much? The tech titans are openly publishing some of the technical details. It uses less invasive Bluetooth technology instead of location data. When the consumer deletes the app, the data is deleted too. And perhaps best of all, you have to opt. In.
2: Right. They're not saying, look, everybody who has an iPhone or an Android is automatically going to be part of this initiative. And that's that's a pretty big deal.
3: The Apple-Google plan functions a lot like Singapore's TraceTogether app, which uses Bluetooth signals to detect phones near each other for several minutes at a time. Reported infections would have to be confirmed, and as an end user, you and public health officials monitoring the data wouldn't know much other than who is or was proximate to an infected person. No names, addresses, age, gender, surveillance camera footage, credit card purchase records, etc.
2: Exactly. What's the absolute sort of minimum data we need for the purpose we're trying to achieve here?
3: A growing list of governments around the world are contact tracing now. The Trump administration is reportedly thinking about it through the auspices of a team led by White House senior advisor and presidential son-in-law Jared Kushner. But nobody outside the team seems to have any idea whether they plan to include privacy guardrails. Santa Clara University law professor Eric Goldman for one would rather American private industry do the tracking.
1: Having said that, I think it's time for us to keep asking those questions about the private sector. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? How is this in our best interest? And if there are choices, give us those choices so we can consider other alternatives.
3: With pressure mounting to lift shelter and place measures as soon as possible, the appeal of some kind of contact tracing strategy is growing. With the right data, individuals could voluntarily self-quarantine, and a lot of the rest of us could get back to work. Depending on which poll you choose, half to 70 percent of Americans would be game to comply or at least participate.
1: In a situation like this, our number one priority is to restore the public health. And that means a lot of things go out the window, things that we care about very deeply, but are second to the battle that we have to win.
3: The question is, once we accept that private industry and or the government is tracking our every move, will we insist that they stop when the pandemic is finally over? For The California
0: Report, I'm Rachel Myro. This week, our sister show, The California Report magazine, takes an up-close look at how the COVID-19 pandemic has touched the lives of frontline workers and their children. The kids of those workers have to worry about the risks their parents face. That's on top of the constraints of just living during the outbreak. Host Sasha Koka brings us a glimpse into these conversations.
4: Well, you know, some hospital workers are actually staying away from their families to protect their kids. So I've talked to kids who haven't been able to see their parents for weeks on end. Others are still living in the same house, but taking a lot of extra precautions. And, you know, kids told me that they're feeling like they're navigating the unpredictability of life without school, you know, like most kids are. But they have this added stress of worrying about their parents getting sick. And they're telling me that there's a lot more tension at home because their parents are under so much pressure. And they've got a lot more responsibility, like caring more for their siblings or picking up the slack at home.
0: Yeah, that has gotta be taking a toll on them. You talked to a family in the Central Valley. Um, tell us about that.
4: Well, Marina Rocha is a senior. Her brother Marshall is a sophomore. They live in Clovis near Fresno. But their mom actually commutes to Oakland, to Highland Hospital in the Bay Area, uh, to work as an ER nurse. And she sleeps in a trailer while she's doing her shifts as an ER nurse in the Bay. And then on her days off, she drives home three hours to see her kids. But now with coronavirus, she's not even coming into the house. She's just seeing them from a distance.
0: She always says, I don't want to put you at risk. She doesn't want to come into the house at all.
1: Obviously, we couldn't touch each other. We can't give her hugs. I love to, like, give her a hug and make sure she's fine. I'm a mama's boy. I love my mom. I really don't know what I would, like, do if she got hurt or sick.
4: Wow, Sasha, that must be really hard. It is really hard. And, you know, I talked to their mom, too, and it's really hard for her because she's coming home from her shifts to this isolated trailer. And she said, you know, I just can't wait for the day when I can sit on the couch with my kids on either side of me and just fall asleep holding them. I I just want a hug, too. I can imagine. Um, Wow. Well,
0: first of all, thank you for reporting this story, Sasha. It's going to be on this week's California Report magazine. What else is going to be on the show?
4: Well, this week we're actually devoting our whole show to the stories of frontline healthcare workers here in California. So we'll hear audio diaries from an ER nurse, we'll hear from an in home healthcare worker, and also from a palliative care doctor about how they're adapting end of life procedures with coronavirus. You know, now when people are dying, they can no longer have all their family members at their bedside.
0: All right, Sasha, we're grateful to you for bringing us those stories. You'll hear them on our sister program, The California Report magazine. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks, Lily. And that is The California Report, a production of KQED Public Radio for this Friday, April 17th. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Raquel Maria Dillon, Alice Wolfley, and Mary Franklin Harvin are our producers. Angela Corral is our editor. Our managing editor is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend.
2: Support for the California Report comes from Hint Water. Hint is water infused with fruit essences including watermelon and blackberry. No sugar, no sweeteners, no calories. Available in grocery stores. Hint mouthwatering water. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems.